0: The song of songs which is Solomon's Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth for your love is better than wine your anointing oils are fragrant your name is oil poured out therefore virgins love you draw me after you let us run the king has brought me into his chambers we will exalt and rejoice in you we will extol your love more than wine rightly do they love you this is the very word of God Well, we are 15 sermons into our study of Ezekiel, which took us through the first 32 chapters of that book. But before we finish out that study, we're going to spend the next two months, next seven or eight weeks, studying the Song of Songs. Now, there's at least two reasons why we are sandwiching the song in between Our study of Ezekiel. In case you don't know, uh, every summer, usually in late July, early August, I propose the sermon plan to the elders. Uh, And then after we've looked through that and prayed about it a bit, we uh, decide on the sermons we're going to preach for the next year. And uh, this year, this past summer, as I looked at this, Uh, I noticed that the way the calendar would work really well with Ezekiel would be if we could uh, draw out the study into Easter and uh, come back to some of the themes that the latter part of Ezekiel will help us to celebrate Easter better. And so that's one reason why we're doing it. We want to save part of Ezekiel for the Easter season. But the second reason has to do with why we would choose to study the Song of Songs along with Ezekiel in the first place. Why this particular book of the Bible? And one way to get at that is you might ask yourself, is there any connection between Ezekiel and the Song of Songs? Anything that these two books have in common? Um, what, What are they about? And to answer that question, well, I need to preach this sermon. This morning, my goal is to present an introduction to the Song of Songs and then give us all a sense of why this book is important for the Christian faith. I'm guessing that most of you already have some idea about the content found in the Song of Songs. A few of you in some friendly banter with me knowing that this was coming, have expressed your hesitancies about our study of the song. You know what we find in this book is language about a very sensitive subject. Yeah, I feel your hesitations. While I'm excited about trying to better understand any part of Scripture, I'm well aware that this is going to be a bit more challenging and that we will need to choose our words wisely, Both to clearly communicate the message of the song, but also to not speak in an insensitive or inappropriate way. So let me assure you, those of you who are nervous, you feel the perspiration already on your forehead. Let me assure you that that is my intention. And I want you to be here with me as we go through this text some of you will have no problem with that. You knew the Song of Songs was coming. You're like, hey, I'm looking forward to church today. This is going to be interesting. Others of you, I know, this is going to bring up some difficulties, some difficult subjects. It's going to stir the emotions in all sorts of ways. And I know that talking about the themes that are discussed in the Song of Songs can be dangerous for all kinds of reasons. Hey, at least there's only eight chapters. <laughs> Okay, so as we get started, let's get a handle this morning on the title, the subject, and the message of the song. The title of the Song of Songs, the subject, and the message. Verse 1 is something of a title page for the song and everything that follows. You know, you open a book and you've got like the the title page. That's what you're seeing at verse 1. The verse says, the Song of Songs, which is Solomon's. Just four words in the Hebrew Bible which tell us the name of the book. The first two words are the name, are the title of the book. The first two words in the Hebrew Bible, and you see it right here, is the Song of Songs. So from now on, I'm asking us to refer to the book by that name or by the abbreviated name, The Song. The name, though, The Song of Songs, suggests to us that what follows is supposed to be the best song, the best of all songs. The last two Hebrew words in verse 1, translated, which is Solomon's, might suggest to us that this is the best of Solomon's songs, According to 1 Kings chapter 4, verse 32, Solomon composed 1,005 songs. That sounds like a lot to me. So perhaps verse 1 is telling us that here we have the best of the 1,000-plus songs that he wrote. But the problem is that the wording here does not necessarily mean that Solomon is the author of the song. It could be a song written by him or to him or about him. Now, we should probably rule out that last option. Solomon himself is only mentioned a few times in the song and is certainly not the song's central character. So that leaves us with the option that the song was either written by him or to him. And we simply can't know from the way the Hebrew is is mentioned here, but... Its attachment to Solomon in verse 1 probably means, at the very least, that the song was written during his time and probably from somewhere within his administration. Its association with Solomon is the reason why many English versions still to this day call it the Song of Solomon. Now, what is it about the song? that can substantiate its claim to be the song of songs, the best song of all? And that's a good question, of course. The answer might be found in the way that it is put together. Many scholars say that the song is actually a compilation of a number of independent songs, just how many independent songs there are would, of course, be a matter of debate. For certain, the chapter divisions that we have in our English Bible is of no help. Commentators have their opinions, of course, on how to divide up the songs. Some say that there are nine independent songs. Others have suggested 14, 19, 23, or maybe as many as 42 Now, some attempt to try to divide up the song is necessary just to try to make some comment about the text in an organized way. But clearly, the various poems within the song are knit together into a cohesive unit. It is a song of many songs, explains one commentator, that work together as a unified opus to make the finest of songs. Now, whether we agree that that claim is true or not will be, of course, a matter of personal taste as anything else. Uh, How do you go about proving that this song or another is the best song of all? We probably all have our different tastes. But for us Christians... There is, of course, the simple, unavoidable fact that here we have this particular song called the Song of Songs right here in our Bibles, taking its place in our canon of Holy Scripture. And though for all kinds of reasons the song doesn't get much attention, the words of a first century rabbi about the song might invite us to look a little closer. Here's what he said. For the entire age is not so worthy as the day on which the song of songs was given to Israel. For all the scriptures are are holy, but the song of songs is holiest of all. Well then, let's see if we can see What this Jewish rabbi saw when he read the Song of Songs. Let's approach the Holy of Holies, if you will, and see what we can see. Well, honestly, it's not that hard to see in general terms what the subject or theme of the song is. The first verse of the first song, which is actually verse 2, you're with me, in the book, Uh, will make the subject matter quite plain. I don't think it'll be hard to miss. Let's look at it again. Song of Songs 1-2. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Yep. The song is about love another reason I chose it. It's almost Valentine's Day, so it felt like a good time. Specifically, it is about romantic love. It is a collection of romantic love poems. But as we quickly discover, the song is even more specific. It's about love. It's about romantic love, and it is about the intimacy. That is the physical expression of that romantic love. Verse 2 has already told us this. Glance down to verses 12 and 13, and it becomes even more explicit. Well, hang on to your seatbelts, because it will get even more explicit in the chapters that come. In the words of one commentator, the Song of Songs is, quote, something like an erotic psalter. What in the world is it doing in our Bibles? That's a question that has been asked for a very long time. And if that's a subject that is going to make you nervous, you're not alone. In fact, from the earliest existing evidence that we have, the song was understood to be, well, not really about that but more of an allegory about something else. Its primary meaning was not taken to be what it appeared to be in plain language. Early Jewish interpreters took the song to be about God and his love for Israel. Later Jewish interpretation of the song shifted just a bit, taking the song's meaning more individually, describing the love of God for each individual person within Israel. The early Christians largely followed Jewish allegorical approaches, but found new meanings in light of historical developments. The first Christian interpreter of the song that we know of suggested, for example, that the breasts of the woman in Song four five refer to the Old and the New Testaments. Convenient, of course, it was easy enough to now say that the song was about Jesus. And the church, rather than God and Israel. And plenty of other allegorical interpretations have been suggested over the years. That, of course, is probably the biggest problem for an allegorical approach to the song. As one commentator has put it, if you happen to find agreement between two different allegorical interpretations of the song, it can only be because one of the interpreters has simply copied The other. You see, the main problem with reading the song as an allegory rather than what it sure sounds like it means is that there simply is no indication within the song itself that you're supposed to read it that way. And there is nothing but creative imagination to help us know what the song is really all about. So if you approach the song as an allegory, then you're really just left with your own ideas to try to interpret it. Nevertheless, there's one thing that the allegorical approach to the song does commend to us, and that is the need for a healthy, holy, sanctified imagination. The song of songs is a song. It's poetry, So, you're not going to be surprised to find that it comes loaded with figurative language, similes, metaphors. It is an invitation into our imagination. It is art. It is creative. It is not written, as you can well see, as a theological treatise on the subject of love and romance and sex. It is an invitation to the subject through the medium, the means of a song, poetry, art. Some of you, I know, are more into that kind of communication than the rest of us. But all of us live in a world that is far richer, far more beautiful because of it. I mean, if it was left to some of us who are just more inclined toward prose than poetry, we just have a world with white walls, no pictures, no art, kind of like a bachelor's room, right? Who wants to live there, at least not forever? I remember the most challenging class that I took in college, English Literature. I had a hard time in that class because I'm not so poetic and artistic. Have a hard time with poetic language. I don't understand the music, I guess you might say, Vince. I don't know. I remember when I took the final exam, I almost laughed out loud when I read the question, what is the meaning of the rose in some Shakespearean sonnet? (laughs) How should I know? How could anyone other than Shakespeare himself know? And that is the point that you and I are going to have to grasp when we begin to read the Song of Songs. It's just the reality that the more poetic the language, the more a piece of art makes use of imagery, the more difficult it is to say it it means this. Are you with me? Uh, But that's not a failure on the part of the poetry. That's, in fact, its intent. By the use of metaphor and other artistic devices, the song, like all good poetry, like the Psalms. Pastor Jod read Psalm 63. When you read through the Psalms, same thing is going on. There's metaphors, there's imagery, and it invites you to slow down, to imagine, to take in the meaning of the metaphor That's what the song is doing. Like all good poetry, it invites us to explore various levels of meaning in a way that can deeply affect us in different ways and yet all at the same time. It's like those lovers of art who can sit in front of some masterpiece for hours. You ever been to a museum and you see them sitting there? You're like, what are they doing? (laughs) I mean... Apparently, that is what is required to really get it. I go through the museum way too fast. Perhaps we all need to work on our artistic side a bit more. Maybe an afternoon or evening or a whole day at the art museum is called for as we work through the Song of Songs. Now, let me be clear. This does not mean... That we all get to decide for ourselves what this biblical text, or any other for that matter, really means. It does mean that we've got to leave some room for one another to meditate on and explore the themes that the song is addressing. My attempt will be to identify the meaning of many of the metaphors that are being employed. My English literature professor would be proud But then I'm going to invite you and your spouse, if you're married, and certainly you and your community to explore the various levels of meaning that the imagery invites us to consider. Now, we may well make some mistakes. We might wonder at times if we've gone too far. Or... Perhaps some of you will sense, I don't know that we're going far enough. In either case, we should ask ourselves the question, why? What's driving us, perhaps, on the one hand, to see a double entendre and sexual imagery everywhere if it's not really there? Why, why are you seeing those things? More likely, we should ask why. Why are we holding ourselves back from letting ourselves go into the erotic picture that seems to be painted for us in the Holy Bible of all places? This can be really uncomfortable. Tense, awkward, embarrassing. I get it. Perhaps this is, perhaps this is just a subject that is too risky or risque for you. Join the club. You are not alone. This is true for every single one of us, though in different ways, to be sure. I'm already impressed at the breadth of the material that is related to our sexuality that the song explores. Issues of beauty and passion, intimacy, and yes, abuse. Ecstasy, but also disappointment. It's all here in these eight chapters it is very much written for married couples but it has not but it has not at all neglected the non-married among us either young old alike this is a community project as uncomfortable as that may be it is just not something that we can neglect if we are indeed christians who take the Bible, the whole Bible seriously, then I told somebody at some point, we got to do the Song of Songs, so we might as well do it now. All right, so as we begin our study of the Song of Songs together, let's consider the message of the song in light of the larger context of the whole Bible. What does the song, with its subject matter, contribute to the entire gospel story. Let's see if we can at least do that as we get off into the text together this morning. If this is the subject that the song is about, if these are the kinds of themes that the song is inviting us into, what does that have to do with the rest of the Bible? What does that have to do with the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God? Well, Just looking at verses 2 to 4, let us draw some initial observations. Somebody keeps resetting my time back there. That's awesome, guys. I love how you're doing that. Like, the sermon just started. That's really cool. So, all right. Game on. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right, let's draw some initial observations. The song begins here in verse 2 with a celebration of the romantic kiss between lovers. (laughs) Sorry, Corey, that we made you read read that verse. Super awkward. He did a great job. The kiss is all the more wonderful as an expression of a love that the, the poet says here is better than wine. The comparison of this love to wine invites you to use your imagination. Now, it might help if you have, like, tasted wine and enjoy wine. That could help. But let's think about it for a moment. And it might help you as you ponder the comparison that's being made to know that the word love here in verse 2 and in verse 4, when it is, again, compared to wine, it's different than the usual Hebrew word for love, which we also find... In these texts, in verse three and at the end of verse four, you find the normal word for love. But here, twice, when this love is compared to wine, it's a different word than the normal, the usual Hebrew word for love. This particular word for love does not refer to the more abstract abstract concept of love. It refers it refers to the more concrete act of love. It might even better be translated love-making, as we might say. Yes, right off the bat, right here in verse 2, this is what the song is talking about. And while we've argued against an allegorical approach to the song, a theological reading of the song takes us down very similar paths to the allegorical approach. Uh, It's interesting that it doesn't seem like anywhere in the New Testament uh, we have a direct quote from the Song of Songs. It seems to be a book almost that the New Testament has avoided altogether. But you probably will recall that in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul tells us that the one flesh relationship between a husband and wife is is a profound mystery he says Ephesians 5:32 and he tells us that it refers to Christ and the church sounds like that allegorical approach doesn't it so if we want to understand the gospel Ephesians chapter 5 tells us then we are invited to consider the love yes even the love making between a husband and a wife There's something there, there's something about that, that is meant to tell us about the relationship that Jesus has with his people. Awkward, I know. But let's stay there. What is the nature of this loving relationship between Jesus and his church? The point that is being made there in Ephesians is drawn not from the Song of Songs but a different Old Testament text. And we don't have to guess which one it is. Ephesians 5.31 cites from Genesis 2.24. You should go there. Turn your Bibles to the beginning, back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 2, we're going down to the end of the chapter where we read these words. Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother And hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, let me just pause here and ask you to imagine. If God, in bringing together a man and a wife in marriage, is saying, leave your father and mother. Leave this context in which you have been deeply and dearly, ideally, of course, loved, nurtured, brought up, and joined together to your spouse... Would God be minimizing love or taking it to another level? The answer is obvious. We find then in Genesis 2.24, right after this citation that Ephesians 5 makes use of, this verse, you see it, the very end of Genesis 2, "...and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed." The Song of Songs, we might say, is a commentary on Genesis 2.25. It's inviting us to ponder more deeply what on the surface we kind of get. You see, from the beginning, the Bible, from the very beginning, speaks of the goodness of the body and all material things. We Christians have often forgotten this, God made a world in the beginning. A physical, fleshly world. And God called it good. He called it really good. God made us Intending for us to be in our bodies, our physical, sexual bodies. God did not relegate us into a body until finally, mercifully, through death, we can escape it once and for all. Um, Pastor Jod was part of a panel in her faith panel um, two weeks ago. Is that two weeks ago? The time goes by fast. And uh, the contrast between the Christian view of the body that our brother well presented and other faith view of the body, to me, was one of the most striking things that stands out. Right after Genesis 2.25 comes, of course, Genesis 3 and the story of sin and the covering up of the body out of shame. And ever since then, the Bible insists, human beings have struggled to find a way to enjoy the the sensuous nature of our bodies without the associated shame. Some try it by pushing the boundaries toward a shameless, pornographic nudity. But others do it This is where Christians usually have gone, by an ascetic spirituality that tries hard to do everything possible to keep the attention off the body at all costs. Some of the early Christian interpreters of the song who were allegorizers were also ascetics. They believed in afflicting the body, denying the body, because real spirituality was not about bodies. The Christian faith, though, the Christian gospel, all the way back in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and certainly if you're reading the Song of Songs, like it appears to be meant to be read, challenges both of these attempts as deadly and off course. We cannot try to push the boundaries toward a shameless pornographic nudity. That won't work. But neither can we deny, through some sort of ascetic approach, The reality that God made our bodies and he meant them to feel and to experience pleasures. So what's the solution? If there is one at all. Is there hope for our bodies as God made them to be? Now that's a good question. That is is the question that gets us right to the heart of the Christian faith. And church, you, we gotta get this right. I think if there's, a, if there's a mission I'm on, this stage of my life, it's to try to help the church, my job is you <laughs> and me, to get this one right. Our belief in resurrection is not a belief In a bodiless life after death, you you go to funerals these days, I know because I've been to a few, Uh, so many of them want to speak of resurrection as, well, that means that there is a life after death. So-and-so who just died is alive, and yet that coffin or that urn right in front of us is telling us a different story, right? Hang on, Jackie, let me finish. No, resurrection does not mean there is a life after death without the body. That's not what resurrection means. It means a fully embodied life after life after death, a return from death to life in the body. In the material world that God made and is intent on redeeming. You got that right? Are we getting this? (laughs) This is the message of the Bible. This is the Christian faith. It is one of the most distinctive realities of the Christian faith. And the Song of Songs takes its place right here as part of this Old Testament longing and expectation, uh, as some kind of a return to the Garden of Eden, where we can be once more exposed and not ashamed. Now, I know it can be hard for us to imagine that, the world that we currently live in. You mean to tell me, Ben, that just hang on. I know you're imagining. That's okay. We're going to do a lot of this in the weeks that follow. We're going to stay anchored to what the Bible has made plain to us elsewhere, but we're going to in, well, walk into these conversations. But the song invites us to imagine a new world and its possibilities. The song invites us And even gives us a way to begin to experience it, a foretaste of what is yet to come in all its glorious, consummated fullness. And I use that word on purpose. So, the reason why we are studying the Song of Songs now is because... It is part of our overall theme for this sermon year that we've entitled, The Life-Giving Love of God. That's what we've been trying to get at in the book of Ezekiel. That's what we're going to keep trying to get at in the Song of Songs. You see, because the Bible wants us to begin to know, Ephesians 3.19 tells us, something about the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. I've always been hung up by Ephesians 3.19. Paul says, I want you to know the love of Christ, which you can't really know. (laughs) What does that mean? Here's what it means. The love of God for you in Christ is not something you can only comprehend with your mind. You are meant in some way to feel it in your body. Like the kisses of the mouth in verse 2. Or the smell of the fragrant essential oils in verse 3. Or like the taste of wine in verses 2 and 4. The love of God in Christ for you is, it's like wine, but better yet. It's kind of like love making, or, you know, that dessert that you tasted one time and enthusiastically said, wow, this is amazing. What do you call this stuff? And everybody snickered and said, it's called better than, yeah, I'll stop there. Yep, that's what we're going to be talking about as we study together the Song of Songs because... Do you know this, Christian? There is a love that is better than wine, more pleasing than scented oils, more ecstatic than the intimate love between a husband and wife. By the grace of God, may we come to know this love. Let us pray. Well, Father, obviously, we're going to need your help here. We, uh, apart from Christ, left to ourselves, we're going to go in all sorts of unhelpful, deadly, wrong ways. But you invite us in to try to comprehend what is incomprehensible, where we can't just grasp with the mind, but we're meant to experience, yes, even in our bones, even in our bodies, the love of God in Christ for his own, that he loved so dearly that he purchased us with his own blood. He laid his life down. This is the kind of love that makes a new world. And the world that we're living in now, broken, sinful, is longing to know a love that really can transform everything. The Christian faith says this love took on a body, became one with us, walked among us. The new creation has begun in Jesus Christ. This is the great gospel hope all the way back in the Garden of Eden. This is what we're looking forward to in its full consummation when he appears. But it's a love that we can begin to taste and see now. Oh, that you would grant us by your grace a taste of this unending love. Help us, we pray.